Our second reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through his wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were no, of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify all the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The word of the Lord. Let's begin in prayer. Gracious and almighty God, you are good to us and your spirit is with us. And I know that many of us come weary with very heavy burdens. I know there are people struggling with illness and incredible difficulty. And we come now weakened and weary in faith, O oh Lord, that you have a word for us. We ask that by your spirit you would speak and by your spirit you would open our hearts and our minds to the truth, the beauty, the goodness of who you are, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. According to a recent study, the city of Austin is the ninth most educated city in the state or in the, in the country. It's the most educated city in the state of Texas. Nationally, we fall a little below Ann Arbor, Michigan, which is number one, and the Durham Chapel Hill area, number seven. But rest not, or you can rest easy, we remain among the most educated cities in the country, and certainly the world. The study supports something that a, a friend told me when I first moved here. They said, welcome to Austin, where your barista has more education than you do. <laughs> this reality, our high rate of education, our learned status as a city, is one reason why our reading this morning from 1 Corinthians might be difficult for us to hear or receive. We value education and understanding. We value the place of reason. Being foolish is not something we aspire to be. In his book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, 
Scholar Mark Knoll himself, proudly evangelical, writes, the scandal of the evangelical mind is that there's not much of one. And the degree to which this passage might be construed to say something like, be a fool, despise wisdom, the way it might be used to advocate for a denial of the place and importance of the mind and the life of the mind, it's to be rejected. After all, all truth is God's truth, and Jesus, the one who calls us to himself to follow him, challenges us to love the Lord with our minds as well as our hearts, our bodies, and souls. Happily for educated citizens in an educated city, the Christian faith does not require the abandonment of learning and reason. This is not what the Apostle Paul writes about here in 1 Corinthians 1. Yet what he does articulate here is no less scandalous for us. It may yet even be more of an affront to us. The scandal of Christ crucified. I can't believe I'm about to make this reference, but in her recent Netflix series, The Goop Lab, <laughs> actress and lifestyle brand purveyor Gwyneth Paltrow describes the show, the show that she has, all, and she says it's all about the optimization of the self. She says this is what we're all about, optimizing the self. That's a striking phrase. It's perhaps a little more naked, even mechanical, than we might use or hear elsewhere, but it captures something of the spirit of our age. The language of flourishing, of thriving, living your best life now, maximizing your potential. Those words or phrases are perhaps easy to poke fun at in certain forms, but they capture something very contemporary, very human, probably innate and God-given. The desire to be something more, to be fruitful, to not waste our time, our resources, our lives, to seize the moment. And we have various modes and means of realizing that desire. You have life hacks, new workout routines, productivity apps. The final Christian answer to this desire, articulated by Paul here in 1 Corinthians, is sobering, is confronting, it's a scandal. Want to be all that you can be? Want to flourish and thrive? Want to truly maximize who you are? Consider the cross. Carry the cross. Rest in Christ crucified. Put your trust in him and follow in his way. Paul names this answer, Christ crucified, a stumbling block and foolishness to the Jew and the Greek. And the word for stumbling block is scandal. It's scandalous, seemingly nonsensical. To become what I long to be, I must die. To have hope and life and freedom, I follow in the steps of one who died in this torturous and humiliating way. That is the optimized self. That's my exemplar. The full force of the cross and its scandal is, I think, somewhat diminished for us. 
We have history, centuries of the cross as this symbol of triumph and piety. But in the time of Paul's writings, death by crucifixion was abhorrent and shameful enough that in polite Roman or Corinthian society, it wouldn't have been referred to at all, but by euphemism. If you were a citizen of Rome, death by crucifixion was prohibited. It was so abhorred. So the notion that this honored, celebrated, or divine figure would suffer such a death and that the the path to wisdom and power might involve a similar thing for us would have been shameful, disgusting nonsense, scandalous. Paul identifies the message as an affront to both Jews and Greeks or Gentiles. What those groups, what those people share in their expectation of signs, signs of power, and in their search for wisdom, is this common understanding of what success, what triumph, what victory look like. For Jews waiting on the Messiah, it's these displays of power, mastery over the things that oppress the enemies. For the Greeks who were celebrating debaters and speakers, it was the ability to to demonstrate wisdom and learning to influence others. What's striking about both those things, the signs and the words of wisdom, is that both those features were actually elements of Jesus' ministry. Displays of power, feeding the 5,000, healing the sick, raising the dead. Words of wisdom, speaking with skill and authority that confounded his hearers, that drew people to him. Words that stand as wisdom today. But Paul points here to none of that as the central act of power in Jesus' life and ministry. He doesn't say, look at the amazing things he said and did. He doesn't say, see how who Jesus was meets your expectations in some kind of way. The message, the central focus he identifies is Christ crucified, the worst possible thing. The center of the faith is not what we might readily see as an act of healing, triumph, or success, not a particular insight or display of mastery. At the center is this picture of helplessness and weakness, shame and defeat. And Paul's point is that the upside-down, unexpected quality of that is exactly the point. It confounds our expectations and our ideas of success. It humbles those who've built their lives on illusory ideas of flourishing power and wisdom. And it identifies Jesus the Christ with the shamed, the weak, the defeated. What does the optimized person look like? What is the hope of a flourishing life? For the Christian, the answer to both is Christ crucified. If you'd like to become a better you, more of who you're supposed to be, take up your cross, die to yourself. If you'd like to have hope for the future, a sense of security in a fragmented, insecure world, rest in what Jesus has done at the cross where he presents us with clean and pure hearts, where our status is made secure 
righteous, holy, and redeemed. In my hometown of Vancouver, there was a prominent Anglican priest who served for many decades through the 20th century. He served as the rector of a church that was in a very wealthy part of the city. And he began his work there as a pretty young priest. And I can imagine it would have been an intimidating scenario to step into. Early on in his ministry, there an older and wealthy man, peripherally connected to the church, passed away. And during preparations for the funeral, the, the wife of the deceased impressed upon this young priest the need to recount the many accomplishments, the honors the man had received during his life. A member of such and such board, the recipient of such and such prize, esteemed by such and such society. Do this. Do this in the, the sermon, in the homily. And a back and forth took place, I understand, in the preparations for this funeral. With the priest saying, that it's not really not appropriate. It's not the time for such a thing. Do that in a different setting. And the wife insisting, you must, you must, sliding this list of accomplishments across the table. And while the day of the funeral arrived, and the young priest began his funeral homily, sure enough, by reading a list of the accomplishments of the deceased, serving on such and such board, receiving such and such honor, esteemed by such and such society. And upon the completion of this long and illustrious list, he took that list and tore it in pieces and said, this is how much all of that matters. Was that the most pastoral thing to do? <laughs> Probably not. Was the thing, were the things that the man had done bad or negative? No, not necessarily. Work done to the common good, perhaps. It's not wrong to be honored in some way. But the problem arises when such accolades become integral and such conceptions of flourishing success become defining for our lives, the things in which we find security and comfort and rest, counterfeit means to the salvation that God has and does provide in Christ crucified. In his book, The End of the Affair, Graham Greene has one character pray to God. Dear God, if you could only come down from your cross for a while and let me get up there instead. That puts it boldly. It's ridiculous sounding. But there's something very human. There's something in us all that seeks to say it's not finished. I have to do it myself. Let me do it myself. That Paul is writing this to a Christian churched, we might say, audience is a testament to how difficult, how exceedingly difficult it is to keep this central thing, Christ crucified, at the center. Part of the reason when we began as a new church four years ago that we named ourselves Church of the Cross was out of this desire to be a, a gospel-proclaiming, embodying institution in and for Northeast Austin, we wanted to keep the cross at the center. But a name does not guarantee that reality. It's easier to speak of the cross than it is to trust in it or carry it. In every culture, to every person, there's something foreign about the message of Christ crucified 
something foolish-seeming, counterintuitive. I think it may be a, a particular challenge for a community such as our own in this city, in this time and place. I hear for us in Paul's challenging words a call to great care and a call to courage, perhaps. The very beginning of our reading in verse 18, Paul contrasts those who are perishing with us who are being saved. And the aspect of the verb there is important. He emphasizes the promise, being saved. Elsewhere in the letter, it becomes clear that some in the Corinthians church conceived of themselves as having already arrived in some sense, using these worldly standards. We've actualized ourselves. We've actualized our salvation. We've completed the journey. And with a, such a sense of themselves, they were no longer seeking, taking care to seek the way of the cross. They were adopting patterns and of behavior, styles of life, contrary to the gospel. And part of Paul's response is to remind them, you are on the way. You have not yet arrived. You're in process. So take care. Be mindful of the life you lead, the shape of it. In the early church, the centuries immediately after Jesus the life with Christ, life on the way, was commonly understood to be this ascent, a going up in virtue, a growth, climbing the mountain. That takes care and intention. Think of scaling a rocky thing. It takes all of your attention. It takes concentration and care. As a people on the way with Jesus, there's the need to be mindful that we remain on the way we have begun, that we continue to entrust ourselves to his grace and walk in his way. Paul's not here denying the reality that we're saved by grace and that Jesus receives any and all who come to him. He's saying something similar here, I think, to what he writes in Philippians, where he challenges his readers to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, care and attention, intention, mindful of what your life reveals about your own convictions and faith, what you are trusting in, following the way of the cross. In verse 20, three particular figures are mentioned. Paul asks about the wise person, the teacher of the law, and the philosopher of the age. What these figures share in common across Jewish and Gentile lines, both religious and irreligious, we might say, is a certain status of success and achievement, a sense of mastery and accomplishment. Think of well-respected professionals, people who are winning at life. Many of us fall into that category, materially successful, established, well-regarded. And Paul's singling out of these kinds of people is not that there's something wrong specifically with being a philosopher of the age or a teacher of the law, not that there's something wrong with having achieved, but he's emphasizing that such qualities mean nothing when it comes to knowing God and His grace. 
mean nothing when it comes to walking in the way of Jesus. In fact, it seems from the testimony of Scripture, such successes can actually be a hindrance. That those in such a place are less likely to be poor in spirit. That the wise and powerful in the world are those who are are likely, more likely to miss the promise of the cross, to be dissuaded from its path. They're more likely, more tempted to domesticate the way of Jesus to middle class and upper class values who find it hard in the language of our Old Testament reading to walk humbly. As a community of people who by the standards of our city in many senses have arrived, demonstrate a level of sophistication, hold the right opinions, have achieved highly, The call of the scriptures today is to care, to great care in our followership of Christ, to with intention conform our lives to the way of the cross and to hold to our confession that the means by which we are made secure and safe and what truly matters is Christ crucified. Recognizing it in that way takes courage a call to courage. Paul's clear meaning here is that Christ crucified looks stupid to the world. Easily dismissed, difficult to accept. So to walk in that way, to take that as the basis of your life requires courage. It takes a willingness to swim against the current, a a willingness to look foolish. Not to be foolish, but to look foolish. Because one's life is based upon a fact, Christ crucified, that is itself contradictory to the status quo and the way things are. In our gospel reading, Jesus pronounces the meek as blessed. Referring to Psalm 37, he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. In our rough and tumble world, such a statement seems laughable. We conceive of the meek as those who do not have what it takes. They're the ones who have their heads in the sand or get pushed around. They're blind to the way things really are. The meek are the fools. But it is the meek who are blessed. Not because they don't see the world for what it is. They're blind to it. It's hidden from them in some way. In Scripture, two figures are only explicitly named as weak. They're Moses and Jesus himself. The meek are not the fools. They're the ones who take what the world doles out, who bear witness to the brokenness and injustice, but do not fret and do not conform to the pattern that they see. They're able to let what they bear, the burden of it, Roll onto Jesus, roll onto Christ crucified, roll onto God, trusting that he is who he says he is, and that in him it is finished. That is the basis from which they can then act justly, walk with mercy. The meek are the ones who are still before the Lord, waiting patiently for him. These are the ones who inherit the earth. 
These are the ones who can boast. In his reflection on this passage, biblical scholar Gordon Fee writes, reading this passage, we are left with the awful risk. Trust God and be saved by his wise folly or keep our pretensions and perish. Keep our pretensions about success and flourishing and our own wisdom and having arrived or trust God and be saved by his wise folly. It is a risk to take Jesus at his word, to build your life on the foundation of Christ crucified and persevere in that way, to take and follow in the way that the Lord sees as folly is a risk requiring care and courage. But it is a risk that pays off in spades. It is a risk that is worth taking and keeping on in taking. That word boast used here carries with it, of course, the connotation of confidence. We boast in what we're confident in, in what we find impressive. We rest, in a way, on what we boast in. It's what we find security in. This is impressive. Those who boast not in their self-sufficiency or sense of achievement and success, but boast in Christ crucified, who revel in what he has done and glory in what has been accomplished for us, they're at rest. They, the wise and boastful meek, have stepped off this treadmill of proving themselves, of measuring up, of making themselves secure. And they're at rest. Rest in what God has done in Jesus at the cross. And so they flourish. Yes, in ways the world does not necessarily see or celebrate, but they flourish to life everlasting. They optimize themselves in Christ, trusting, risking in the wise folly God. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the confounding, challenging, scandalous gift of Christ crucified. I pray for those of us here who are weary, who carry heavy burdens, who find ourselves perhaps on that treadmill, conform to the pattern of this world in ways we wish were not the case. I pray that right now, just in whatever way, however small by your Holy Spirit, you would give us a glimpse of what it would mean to rest more in Christ crucified, of what it would mean to follow his counterintuitive, countercultural way. And would you fill us with courage Fill us with care, intention, attention to this, such that we would persevere in the good way you have won for us. In your name we pray. Amen.